as we come before you this morning now, Lord, as we open your word, God, we pray that you would anoint this time, God. We pray for your will this morning to take place. Would you prepare our hearts to hear from you, Lord? That this would be your message to us, God, that we would be receptive, that our heart would be softened, Lord, and that we would be edified and encouraged and exhorted, Lord. We want to be women who are pleasing to you, God, who look more and more like Jesus. And so, God, we want to spend time in your word. Would you transform us and move among us this morning, Lord? We thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity to spend this time together. We just give it to you. Ask that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, well, Michelle and Pastor John are in Texas. They were invited to share at a... a marriage uh, retreat this weekend, but they will be back tomorrow. Actually, Pastor John will be teaching this weekend, so I just want to let you know that. Um, I get to start us off in First John, and I'm excited about that. As you study this chapter, um, we are told that it was written by John, although you may have noticed that it doesn't say who it's from, and it doesn't say who it's to, but there is strong external evidence that John is indeed the author of this book. And we learned from our homework that it was written about 85 to 90 AD, and it was written to believers who seemed to know John well and personally. It's been said that John was the last living link to Jesus Christ. He was one of the first disciples called to follow Jesus, and he was the last surviving apostle as his death came sometime around 100 AD. Now, his purpose in writing this letter was to affirm the believer's and the reality and the security of their faith. And you'll see as we go through this book, John says um, many times, I'm writing so you will know that. He wants the believers to know that they know that they know that they are secure in their salvation. And if you lack uh, assurance or security in your salvation, you're going to enjoy going through this study. When we studied First and Second Peter, we studied the fundamental keys of the Christian life to remind us that we were established in the truth. In Second Peter 1.12, Peter wrote, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Now in First, Second, and Third John, you'll see the theme that runs through John's letters is that we would walk in the truth. In a day when the false teachers were infiltrating the church, they were jeopardizing the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, John wrote so that these believers would not only know the truth, but that they would also walk in the truth. Let's start with 1 John chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. You'll remember from our homework that the reason why John began the letter this way was to refute those false teachers that were saying that Jesus' humanity wasn't real. Some even saying that he was just an angel. And John is testifying here, telling them that isn't the truth. John was an eyewitness to Jesus' humanity. He had a personal encounter with Jesus. Jesus wasn't a vision. He wasn't a ghost. He was real flesh and blood. And John says he was manifested among us. That's a word that John likes to use. Our 
homework took us back to the book of John, he also used that word. Manifested means to render apparent. Uh, in John chapter 1, John said, Jesus, the word became flesh. He dwelt among us. Jesus walked with them. Jesus ate with them. He taught them. He lived among them. They knew Jesus face to face, and they had a relationship with him. And you can just imagine the frustration that John must have felt to hear that what these false teachers are saying, that they would cast a shadow of doubt on the faith of these believers. And so he's making his case here that his testimony can be trusted because he was an actual eyewitness. So he says in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John was taking what he knew to be true, and he was now passing it on to the other believers. He said, we're declaring this to you. It's not a secret. This is good news. We want to get this out there. Let me ask you, when you hear good news, don't you want to be the first person to go tell it to somebody else? I do. I don't know. Maybe there's kind of an element of pride in there, but I want to be the first one to tell everybody. When you hear something exciting, don't you? But is that how we feel about the good news of the gospel? Are we so excited? Is it burning in our hearts to share it with somebody else or what God has done in our lives? You know, we haven't visibly seen Jesus face to face like John did, but we have seen his work in our lives, haven't we? Are we declaring that to others? We haven't audibly heard the voice of Jesus like John did, but haven't we heard his still small voice speak to us when we're studying his word? And are we declaring that to others? In order to do that, we have to have a personal relationship with Jesus because that's where it starts. We can't give to someone else what we haven't experienced for ourselves. Just as John said, that which we have seen, we are declaring it to you. So it begins with having that personal relationship with Jesus knowing him, spending time with him, listening to him, watching for him, and then taking all that he gives to us and sharing it with others. And have you ever wondered why it is that, you know, we seem so quiet about that sometimes in sharing the gospel with other people? I don't know, do we, are, do we really believe it's good news? We can be kind of too content sometimes. I know I can. As long as I'm good and I know my family is good, we're good. But we know there's a world around us who are lost, so lost, and they need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 14 through 15 tells us, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they, how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. And we have lots of people around us who need to hear that good news. And so, Lord, help us that that message would burn on our hearts and that we would just declare that to others who need to know. And we do that. John's first purpose in doing this and sharing this was with the readers was, he says, so that you may have fellowship with us. And that word fellowship is koinonia. And 
That means to have in common. Maybe if you're new here and you wondered why we call our fellowships koinonias, that's where we get that from. It means to have Christian fellowship. And next week we have our koinonia. It's the time we set aside to just enjoy fellowship with one another, away from uh, the church here in a personal setting, because we have that common bond. John wrote that true fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And haven't you found that to be true? Haven't you noticed that no matter where you go in all of the world, you can instantly have fellowship with other people that share that common bond of faith in Jesus Christ? You might be in a totally different culture with people who don't even speak the same language, and, and yet you can instantly have a bond of fellowship with those people. I know um, I had the privilege of going to Uganda in 2017 with the team. My husband and I went, and immediately I felt a sense of connection with those believers there. A lot of times I didn't understand what they were saying, um, but that didn't matter. And especially, oh, during worship, most of the time they were singing in English, but uh, at some points so we went to one church where it wasn't all in, in English, and I didn't understand what they were singing, but my heart was able to worship alongside of them because I shared that common bond of faith in Jesus. It's the one thing in all the world that can unite us. Is there anything else like that that, we could, that could unite us that way? I don't think so. It's Jesus. That's where true fellowship is. <clears throat> sometimes, I mean, Christian fellowship is so strong. Sometimes, don't you feel even closer to your sisters and brothers in the Lord even than you do to your own flesh and blood family? You know, that can be true. So our homework, homework pointed out how fellowship is both a privilege and a responsibility, and I liked that thought that was thought-provoking. Sometimes people feel that fellowship isn't so important for the believer, and I couldn't imagine trying to go through this life without other brothers and sisters to come alongside, for us to encourage each other. Isn't it good to know that you're not the only person who thinks this way, or you're not the only person who lives this way? There are other people out there who think the way that you think and live the way that you live, because we can feel all alone, can't we? Especially, I mean, this world, you know, the Lord has set us apart from this world. We're supposed to be different. It's supposed to be that way. But if we're not in fellowship with other believers, we will feel very lonely in this world, especially as we're getting just further and further into the last days and closer and closer to the return of Jesus. I mean, daily things are happening that just make us feel so, I don't belong here because we don't. And yet we can have that common bond of fellowship with other believers. We know from Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, I'm sure this is familiar to you, but the writer tells us, let us hold fast that confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. And you ladies understand that because you're here. You understand the importance of fellowship, and I commend you for that, but I would encourage you um, to keep it up, whether it's here, whether it's midweek service or home fellowships or what, whatever it is that the Lord would have you to do. Don't forsake getting together with other believers, especially if you're someone who's prone to loneliness or you're prone to depression or discouragement, um, or if you're going through a trial, because sometimes that's our natural inclination. Have you found that to be true when you're going through something difficult that you wanna just kind of withdraw or isolate yourself? 
And that is, that's the worst thing we can do. We need to be around other people, reach out, ask for prayer, get involved you know, in serving. Um, maybe you go and minister to somebody else who's worse off than you are. All those things help us to um, edify us and encourage us and kind of just build us up when we're surrounded by like-minded sisters who can encourage us in the Lord. So there's your encouragement. Don't skip out on your koinonia next week. That's not a day off. Those are good. Take that time to get to know personally the ladies in your group. So that was John's first purpose in writing. He's giving this testimony so that we would have true fellowship with one another. If the false teachers were creeping into the churches and teaching a different gospel, that wouldn't promote true fellowship. That promotes division and confusion. And so John is writing because he wants there to be unity in the church, not another message. There's one true gospel in John's writing so that those believers would know that it's the truth. And then he goes on in verse 4 to give his second purpose. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. One commentator said, fellowship is Christ's answer to the loneliness of life. Joy is his answer to the emptiness of life. And I'm sure we've probably all heard it taught before, joy is different than happiness. Happiness depends on outward circumstances. So when things are good, I'm happy. When things are not good, I'm not happy. And joy is said to be different in that it's an inner sense of cheerfulness that doesn't come and go with circumstances that joy rises above circumstances, and that I can be going through very difficult trials and still experience the joy of the Lord. And I'm sure all of us can attest to that. I'm sure all of us have gone through things where things were difficult and hard, but we still had that inner sense of joy in the Lord. We were settled, and, and we could rejoice even going through those times. But I wanted to talk a little bit today about what happens when we don't. Because sometimes people make it sound like the Christian might not always have happiness, but they will always have joy. That it's a certain guaranteed thing. But I'm a Christian, and I know that I haven't always had joy. You know, can I always have joy? Yes. Should I always have joy? Yes. But do I always have joy? No. And I just want to clarify before we go on, I don't want to sound kind of flippant here with my words. I'm not talking about there are, there are seasons of grieving and seasons of mourning. The Bible says that there's a time and purpose, a time for every purpose under heaven. And so we know that. But I'm referring more to just our everyday life and the day in and the day out. Sometimes we go through life with maybe a sense of emptiness or heaviness or anxiousness and we're not experiencing the joy of the Lord. And I'm asking as I read that verse, why is that? So John said, what would make our joy full? He said, it's with the fellowship with the Father and with his Son. In Psalm 16:11, David said, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And then Jesus said in John 15, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, 
You will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit, and fruit comes from abiding. And so joy is a byproduct of abiding in Jesus. A commentator stated, when a person is in fellowship with God and with the Lord Jesus Christ, he has a deep-seated joy that cannot be disturbed by earthly circumstances. That sounds great, but what if my joy has been disturbed by earthly circumstances? What if it isn't full? What does that indicate in my life? It's an indication that my fellowship with the Lord has been broken somewhere. I'm not truly abiding. I'm still saved. I'm secure in my salvation. I'm a child of God, but I've forfeited my joy for something else. There's like a disconnect between me and the Lord because it is available to me. It's promised to me, but it's as I've, like I've chosen to just kind of momentarily unplug myself from that source of joy. And I I don't know, I want to use my words very carefully. Because there's something I've noticed when I've been thinking about this. A lot of times we use the words, um, I've I've lost my joy, the devil stole my joy. But the more I was just meditating on this this week, the more scripture I see, it's not a matter of losing it or having it taken from me. It's more a matter of, I've made the choice, right? that I've disconnected from the Lord somewhere. There's personal responsibility in that, and that's convicting, because it's easier to blame somebody else for doing something that caused me to lose my joy. But but if I understand the truth, then I can have victory in it. So this right here, I'm going to be honest with you, has been an area I've struggled in for the past few years, the joy of the Lord. And I've learned that if I'm struggling with something, there's a good chance that a lot of other women struggle with it too. And as I came across this verse, as I was studying, you know, John tends to write, well, we've studied Paul. Paul writes in lengthy, complex sentences. John writes in very short, brief sentences, but he says very powerful things in few words. And this verse, that your joy may be full, just stopped me. And um, our homework didn't really go into that much, and I felt like the Lord just wanted me to stop right there and park on that for a little while. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about joy for a little bit. So as I was thinking about joy and what it is that might keep me from abiding in Jesus and having that right relationship with him, the Lord brought me to the book of Philippians because the book of Philippians is the epistle of joy. When Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians, he was in prison, He was under the threat of execution, and yet his letter is one of joy and rejoicing. So I went through the book of Philippians, and as I read through that book, I read it with the thought in my mind, what can I learn about joy from the Apostle Paul? What are the characteristics of a person who experiences the fullness of joy in spite of difficulty and suffering? And I found a lot of stuff. I wrote them all down. And we don't have time to go into all of those, but I do have, 
I have 10 points that we're going to briefly go over um, about, that I found about the person who experiences the fullness of joy. And so if you want, you can turn in Philippians, because I'm going to just pull verses from the whole book as we go through. Um, I apologize, I didn't have time to get them back here for you. But the, um, we're going to start in Philippians chapter 1. So the first thing I found about the person who has fullness of joy is from Philippians 1.6. She has a confidence in the faithfulness of God, and she is secure in her salvation. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Do you ever struggle with doubt in your salvation? John's writing here so that the believers wouldn't, so that they would be assured of their salvation. We probably all do at times. Well, in the letter to the Philippians, Paul's reassuring these believers that God will complete the work that he started in them up until the day of Jesus Christ. And he will do the same for us, and he will do the same for our loved ones. And sometimes when we lose sight of that, we give way to doubt and we forfeit our joy. Number two, she maintains a proper perspective in trials. Philippians 1, verses 12 through 14. Paul said, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul had spiritual eyes to see the good that was coming from the trial that he was in. And if the Bible says that all things work together for good to those who love God, and we love God, then that promise is for us. If we truly believe that promise, we can maintain joy even in the midst of trials, but if we take our eyes off of the Lord, that joy will be swallowed up with discouragement. Number three, she has completely and entirely surrendered her life to the Lord, spirit, soul, and body. Philippians 1.21, Paul said, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul was completely surrendered to the Lord, even unto death. In fact, to the point where he didn't know which would be better, whether he lived or whether he died. He said, if I die, I'm going to be present with the Lord. But he knew it was better to remain here and to minister to these people. It was more beneficial to them. A life that is surrendered to the Lord in that way, to that extent, trusting in the sovereignty of God no matter what happens, that person is able to abide in the joy of the Lord. Number four, she puts the wants and needs of others above her own. <clears throat> Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So you all know the acronym for joy, right? J-O-Y equals Jesus. 
and you. Jesus, others, and yourself. Yes. But that's not what the world teaches us, right? The world says, look out for number one. Make sure you're taking care of yourself because nobody else is going to do that, right? Well, with the Lord, things don't work that way, do they? Jesus himself said it's better to give than to receive. God's economy is different from our economy. It always works backwards. If we are set on having my way, doing everything according to the way I want, make sure that my needs are met always, putting myself first, I'm going to set myself up for disappointment because things don't always happen that way, do they? It robs us of our joy. Joy truly is found in putting the Lord first, putting others before your own needs, and then ourself. Number five, she does all things without complaining and disputing. Philippians 2.14, do all things without complaining and disputing. So that one's a no-brainer. You can't be joyful and have a complaining attitude at the same time, can you? (laughs) That word complaining means muttering and grumbling, and that was really convicting to me because I've done that a lot this week. So many times doing what I'm doing with an attitude of grumbling or complaining, even if it's under our breath, but you know what? The Lord still hears that, doesn't he? The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do it all to the glory of God. And if I'm doing everything to the glory of God, whether it's the most basic thing I've ever done, such as eating and drinking, or whether it's the most important thing I've ever been asked to do, if I'm doing it for the glory of God with that perspective, with that mindset, Lord, this is for you, taking care of my family, taking care of these babies, going to work, cleaning the house, whatever it is, I'm doing it for God's glory, then I won't have a complaining attitude. On the other hand, if I want to kill my joy very quickly, I just need to hold on to that grumbling and continue on in that because I can't have both. Number six, she rejoices in the Lord with no confidence in the flesh. Philippians 3.3, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Paul went on in that chapter. He encouraged the believers to look at himself. He said if there's anyone who could ever have confidence in the flesh, it would be him. He was the ultimate Jew. He was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, he was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness, which is in the law, he said he was blameless. Outwardly, he looked really good in the eyes of man. But then he said, all those things he counted as rubbish. Everything that was so important to Paul before he knew Jesus meant nothing to him now after meeting Jesus. Only his relationship with the Lord was all that mattered. And we live in a world that places a lot of confidence in the flesh, right? I can't help but think of social media where everyone has a platform. We're encouraged to make a name for ourselves to elevate self, to promote self. 
And we can so easily get caught up with wanting to look good in the eyes of others. What is our appearance? Well, how do other people see us? And we place so much emphasis on that outward appearance and status. And, oh, it can be such a trap for us. I don't know if you've heard that quote. There's a quote that's been going around lately by Theodore Roosevelt. It says, comparison is the thief of joy. Have you ever compared your Instagram account to somebody else's Instagram account? <laughs> Comparing ourselves to other people will do one of two things. Either it's going to make us feel better about ourselves because, oh, well, I'm doing so much better than she is, right? Which is pride. Or it makes us feel worse about ourselves, right? Because I'm not as whatever as she is. Measuring ourselves up to other people doesn't benefit us in any way. The Bible says that man looks at outward appearances, but God looks at our heart. That's what important, what's important to him. What is our heart like? May we be so caught up with Jesus, rejoicing in what Jesus has done for us, who Jesus is, and not caught up with ourselves or with people or what we've done, or what we look like, or what we don't look like, or what we've attained, or what we've achieved. That's not what's important. What's important is our heart before the Lord. It's exhausting to live a life striving to maintain a certain image in the eyes of man. And it's a mistake to place our confidence in ourselves, because we will fail, and we should not place our confidence in anybody else, because they will let us down the only person that we could ever put our confidence in is Jesus. He will never fail us. Number seven, she forgets the past and she reaches forward to what's ahead. Philippians 3, 13 through 14. Brethren, I do not count myself to apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. All right, if you want to be robbed of your joy, just dwell on your past failures. Paul said, I'm putting those things behind me. Now, do we learn from those things? Yeah, we learn from them, but then we move forward in the Lord. We can't stop the thoughts. Sometimes those thoughts come to our mind. It's like that video starts getting played, you know, of just something you've done in the past. And um, we can't stop that from happening. It happens. But we can stop what we do with it. We control what we do with it. We can dwell on that or we can put it behind us. We give it to the Lord and say, that, that's not me anymore. That's not who I am, what I am, and I've been forgiven. And the Lord has a new plan for me now. Bible tells us if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away and all things have become new. And aren't we so thankful for that? Are you thankful for new beginnings and a fresh start? That's what you've been given. So don't hold on to those past failures. Press forward in what God has ahead for you. Number eight, she is anxious for nothing, and she prays about everything. Philippians 4, 6 through 7, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So this right here is probably the number one joy stealer for me. It's worry and anxiety. And that the Greek word for anxious means to have a mind divided. Do you ever feel like that? 
I do all the time. You're just caught between, I'm trusting the Lord, he's gonna work everything out, and the next minute, my world is falling apart, I don't know what I'm gonna do. And I've, I live like that so often, and yet the word tells us what to do when we feel that way. We're told to go to the Lord in prayer, to give him those things that are causing us to be worried and anxious with thanksgiving. Tell him what's troubling you. Seek him and seek his will. Jesus gave us a very specific promise regarding prayer in John chapter 16. He says, therefore you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. And in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. That's a great promise. There's power in the name of Jesus. And if we pray in his name and according to his will, which is important, right? Praying according to his will, prayer is not about aligning God to my will. It's about myself being aligned to God's will. But Jesus told us if we would pray that way, that we would have what we're asking for and our joy would be full. Number nine, she meditates on the truth. Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, Whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And right there, that's where our battles begin. It's where our battles are fought, and it's where the battle is won, up here in our minds. What are we spending our time thinking about? To meditate means to ponder, consider, value, or give proper weight to. And if you sense that you have lost your joy, examine your thought life. What are the thoughts that you're meditating on? A lot of times what we're thinking about are the what ifs and the if onlys, right? But what if, what if this happens? What if this happens? Well, what ifs aren't the truth. The Bible tells us to focus on the truth. What ifs haven't happened yet, so that's not the truth. And then we're thinking about the if onlys. If only I, if only I, well, that's not the truth either because we can't change what happened. What happened happened, right? And so we can't go back and change that. That's not the truth. The truth is the truth. And God's word is the truth. Jesus is the truth. And so if you're struggling in that area with joy, examine your thought life. What are you spending your time thinking about? That's a a great list to discipline ourselves with. Memorize scripture, hide it in your heart, read your Bible, listen to worship music. Those are great tools to help us get our mindset right. And then our final characteristic of the joyful person, number 10, she is content. Philippians 4, 10 through 13. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Did you notice that Paul said he learned to be content? 
That doesn't happen naturally. It's, it's a process. It doesn't happen quickly. It's a process. We learn that. He had to go through a lot of difficult things to learn that, and so do we. But as we go through trials and testings that the Lord molds us and shapes us into the image of Jesus, and we learn that too, if we're dissatisfied with what the Lord has allotted to us, we won't experience the fullness of joy. But on the other hand, if we have an attitude of thankfulness in all things for all that God has given us and all that God has done for us, we can maintain that proper place of abiding in him and that natural byproduct then will be joy. All right, now again, that list isn't exhaustive. There's so much more in that book of Philippians, but those are the ones I felt the Lord wanted me to pull out. <clears throat> but one thing I noticed in all of those areas is that it's a choice. The Lord has provided everything that I need for me to experience his joy. But I have to choose whether or not I will obey and abide. It takes an act of my will with cooperation uh, and my cooperation with the Holy Spirit who enables me to do that. At one point, Jesus told his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. And when you read that, you think, well, I can either let my heart be troubled or I can let not my heart be troubled. It's a choice. Am I going to focus on this or am I going to focus on him? He's given me instruction in what to do, and his Holy Spirit enables me. And as we read in Peter, he's given us precious promises that enable us to live that divine life that he's called us to. Sometimes we have to, we hear that term, choose joy, or make our choice to rejoice. And it's true. It's what it comes down to. It's an act of my will that I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. In his day, the prophet Habakkuk, he struggled uh, with what was taking a place around him in Judah. He knew the nation was ungodly. The Lord revealed to him that it would be judged. And when you read through that book, you see Habakkuk struggle as he questions God about what's taking place. And yet by the time you get to the end of the book, it ends so beautifully. And you see just his surrender to the sovereignty of God in Habakkuk 3.17, it says, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. He made the choice to rejoice in the Lord, even when everything was discouraging and desperate around him. And sometimes that's what we have to do too. But I know it's not easy. And I know there's difficult things that come into our lives that shake us. And sometimes to the point where, you know, things are desperate. But I know you've experienced, and I have too, that we can still experience that deep-seated joy of the Lord not that we're happy about what's going on, but we can have an inner sense of just peace and optimism that comes from abiding in Jesus when we're staying plugged into that source of joy. Okay, let's move back now to 1 John. Verses 5 through 7. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 
If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, has, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So as we said, the key to experiencing the joy of the Lord is to abide in Jesus. But when we sin, our fellowship is broken with the Father. We're still his child, just like when your child sins against you, they're still your child, they're part of your family, but your fellowship has been broken. Until there's an apology made and things are made right, you have broken fellowship with them. Well, in that same way, when we have unconfessed sin in our life, it hinders our fellowship with the Lord. And it also hinders our fellowship with other believers too. Have you ever noticed if you're trying to, people are trying to hide something from somebody, they tend to kind of like shy away, they're standoffish, um, they become a little distant. It's because we're walking in dishonesty. We're not walking in the light. It's the same reason why Adam and Eve, they fled from the presence of the Lord, right? And it's the same reason why your child hides from you and they know that they've done something wrong. We tend to just kind of back off. We're not walking in the light. We're not walking in openness and honesty. Unconfessed sin separates us from that right place of fellowship with the Lord. But if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And that means to walk in a generally obedient life without harboring known sin or resisting the conviction of the Holy Spirit on a particular point. And as Christians, do we sin? Absolutely, we sin. We're not sinless, but we should sin less. By being open and honest with the Lord and having a clear conscience before him, we're able to maintain that right relationship with him and then experience that true fellowship. And as I said, that applies to one another too. I don't know if you've ever had um, a relation or tried to have a relationship with somebody who just, they're just not open with you. They're just not honest with you. And you just feel like there's this, I can't have fellowship with this person because they're just, there's something hindering that. It's when we walk in the light of, of truth and openness and honesty that we can truly experience that fellowship with one another. Okay, our last verse is here, verses 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So having true fellowship with God requires that we would acknowledge the truth about ourselves, and that is that we are sinners. And to confess our sin simply means that we agree with God about it. We don't try to cover it, we don't try to excuse it, because that would lead to broken fellowship with the Lord. In order for us to walk Day by day in fellowship with God and with our fellow believers, we have to confess our, confess our sins, that sins of commission, sins of omission, sins of thoughts, sins of acts, secret sins, and public sins. One commentator said we must drag them out into that open place before God, call them by their names, take sides with God against them, and then forsake them. And when we do that, we can claim the promise that God is faithful and just to forgive. And he is so good. Not only does he forgive us our sin, it says he's, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He purifies us. 
which then leads to our right relationship being restored back to our right place with the Lord, which then allows us to experience that fullness of joy that's promised to us. So I'm just going to close. Um, I wanted to remind you, ladies, you know, we talked a lot about feelings today, and feelings are indicators. We aren't supposed to be led by our feelings, but if we're feeling a certain way, it should cause us to examine ourselves. It should prompt us to ask, why am I feeling this way? What's going on that I'm not experiencing the joy of the Lord? Or why am I feeling anxious? If today, I, I hope that you're ministered by that. And if you struggle with that joy of the Lord, I just wanted to ask ourselves a couple questions. First question I would ask is, are you a child of God? We talked at the beginning of the study how the Apostle John had a personal relationship with Jesus. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Because I don't want to assume that everybody that comes to women's Bible study has a relationship with Jesus. If you've never surrendered your life to the Lord and have been born again, you can do so right now. You can do it today. And it's just a matter of coming before the Lord confessing your sin before him, asking him to come into your life and to be your Lord and Savior, and you surrender your life to him, and then what he does for you is he forgives your sin, and he cleanses you from all that impurity that's in there, and then he gives you the hope of eternal life. And so I would just encourage you, if you've never done that, don't wait. Do it today. And if you want to come talk to me after or you want to talk to your group leader after, I would encourage you to do that. Don't walk away here from today. The days are dark. I can't imagine going through this life without a relationship with Jesus. Don't put that off. Secondly, if you are born again, are you walking in the light? Are you abiding with Jesus on a day-to-day, even a moment-by-moment basis? Or have you kind of unplugged yourself from that source of joy? Have you forfeited that joy for something else? Maybe you've given way to fear or worry or anxiety or selfishness or just plain sin. Maybe there's an ongoing sin in your life that the Lord has revealed to you and you have not dealt with it. And I would encourage you, confess that to the Lord. Allow him to forgive you and cleanse you from that so you can start fresh today. So we can experience that joy of the Lord. Be open and honest before him. He knows anyways, right? He knows our hearts anyways. The best thing we can do is just be so open and honest with him. Tell him what you're struggling with. He loves us so much, and he wants us to walk in that that freshness, that newness of life, that joy that's available to us. That's his heart for us. And so I would encourage you today, if there's an area that you need to just surrender to the Lord, that you would do that today, that I would do that today. I'm guilty of every single one of those 10 things that we talked about, every single one of them. Lord, help me. Help me to just keep the proper perspective and mindset with him. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, you are our only hope, God, and you have given us a promise of joy, Lord, that even in desperate times when things are so wicked around us and our hearts can be so easily weighed down, God, that even in that, Lord, 
You promised us joy, and Lord, we claim that promise, and Lord, we want that. And so, God, I pray in Jesus' name, if there is anything in us that we are holding on to that needs to be, we need to be set free of, Lord, I pray that you would reveal those things to us, Lord, that they would be dealt with today, God, that before we leave here today, that would be taken care of, and we can leave here, Lord, just so free and edified and encouraged in you, Jesus. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for all that you've done for us, God. And I do pray if there's anybody here who does not know Jesus personally, that today they would have an understanding spiritually of what that means and that they would come to a point of surrender, that they would stop fighting you and resisting you, Lord, and that they would surrender their life to you, God. Just give you this rest of our time together today. Thank you for each of these ladies who are here. I pray that their times in their group would be so blessed, that they would be so encouraged by their discussion today, God, that you would continue to just teach us and reveal your truth to us as we go through our homework, Lord. And God, I just pray that you would be with us all as we're apart from each other over the next couple of weeks. Bring us back together again for chapter two. We're just excited to see all the things you're going to teach us through this book. And so we give it all to you in Jesus' name. Amen.